0: Turn your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, and while you're turning there, just want to, again, encourage you, as Anthony did at the beginning of the service, to be here next Sunday. So excited. We celebrate Easter every year on Sunday, because that's when Easter falls, right? That's on, on Sunday. But we only get the chance every, what, six or so years to celebrate Christmas Day on Sunday, And so what an opportunity for us as a church to gather together to celebrate the birth of Christ together. So very excited. I'm one of the weird people that thinks we should meet on Christmas Day no matter what day it falls for worship. But um, this is Christmas Sunday uh, this year, so we're going to celebrate together as the body of Christ next Sunday. Um, Let me encourage you. I know Christmas Day is bound together with lots of traditions and things that you do in your family. Let me encourage you to mix things up a little bit this year and to incorporate the gathering of the saints, the worship of Christ in the corporate setting as part of your family tradition. It's what we're doing this year as well. And uh, just make it, I pray, a a meaningful time with your family, meaningful time together with this family, the body of Christ, uh, to worship the Lord together next Sunday. We'll do our best, as Anthony said, that we put the word approximately in the bulletin for specific reasons because I don't want to promise it will be exactly an hour but we will do our best to keep it to an hour so that you can have the rest of your day to do as you've planned. Well, how should we live as Christians? How should we live as Christians? That's an important question. Because of the gospel, we have a new identity. We've been reading in the book of Galatians. We are sons of God, and we are heirs of his promise to Abraham. But that identity, being sons of God, being heirs of the promise that God made to Abraham, that identity has real and significant implications for how we live. It's not just about who we are. It's also about what we do. How should we live as sons of God who've been justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ? We must understand that the gospel is not merely concerned about our eternal destiny. That yes, we have the hope that when this life is over, we will be with the Lord. And we will be with him not just for a moment, but for all of eternity. But the gospel is also concerned about our present lifestyle, our present living. How should we live as Christians? In Galatians chapter 5, as we moved into that uh, chapter last week, into this last section of the book, We see that Paul pivots from doctrine, a lot of theology, a lot of teaching in chapters 3 and 4. He now pivots to practice, to application. What do we do with this instruction? What do we do with these theological realities? How does it affect the way that we live? In Galatians chapter 3 and 4, Paul argued that justification is by faith alone in Christ alone and not by works of the law. We've seen that the law condemns. But Christ redeems. He sets us free from slavery to sin, from slavery to the law, to, from slavery to demonic power. But he has also facilitated our adoption as sons of God and heirs of his promise. For that freedom through the gospel is not a license to live in whatever way we want. So how then should we now live? And Paul provides the answer to that for us, or at least part of the answer, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 26. Let's look at that passage and follow along in your copy of God's Word, and I will read for us from the English Standard Version. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. We were, as I was going through the study this week and looking at this passage, there really is only one main point of the passage. I, if we had to do an out, a real out, outline, there would really only be one point and a few subpoints. points What I'm showing you this morning on the overhead, the slides, are actually the subpoints to this one main point. And the point of the passage that Paul makes here, the thing he wants to emphasize, is that command in verse 16 and verse 25. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the spirit how should sons of god and heirs of his promise now live we live by the holy spirit walking by the spirit having the desires of the spirit being led by the spirit producing the fruit of the spirit keeping in step with the spirit in fact paul highlights here our dependency upon the holy spirit for christian living six times in these eleven verses today we're going to think more about this exhortation, walk by the Spirit. What does Paul say about that? What does Paul say about the life that is filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit? Let's first begin by looking and reminding ourselves of the context of this passage. And let's think about the Galatians and their experience with the Holy Spirit. Back in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Paul reminded the Galatians that they had received the Holy Spirit when they believed the gospel. In fact, this is what God had promised in the Old Testament. He said that under the New Covenant, he would put a new heart and a new spirit in his people. And that new spirit was the Holy Spirit. So the Galatians received the promise of the New Covenant. They received the Holy Spirit when they believed in Jesus Christ. They believed in Jesus Christ, the mediator of the New Covenant, and therefore received the promise of the New Covenant, the Holy Spirit. Now, in those early days of their faith, The Spirit was active in their lives. He was producing in them the fruit of a life transformed by the gospel. They were living a life that was reflecting the life of Jesus Christ himself. That's what the Spirit was doing among them. They were looking more and more like Jesus Christ. The Spirit was powerfully at work among them, even to the point of working miracles as a sign of his presence. But the Judaizers had come in at some point after Paul's ministry to the Galatians, And those Judaizers had thrown the Galatians off course. Those Galatians, though they believed believed that that Jesus was necessary for salvation, that they continued to believe that Jesus was the Christ, they also were suffering the choking of the Spirit in their midst because they were submitting themselves to the law. The Galatians said, you must believe in Jesus, yes, but you also must obey the law. And the Galatians just bought it, hook, line, and sinker. They were believing in Jesus, he was the Messiah, He had saved them from their sins. But they also now were putting themselves under the necessary nature of, of following the law, of going back and living under the Old Testament law as a means of trying to earn righteousness before God. And that, looking for justification by works, was actually suffocating the work of the Spirit among them. In the first part of Galatians chapter 5 and verses 1 to 15 that we looked at last week, Paul exhorted the Galatians to walk in the freedom of the gospel. And that meant walking in the freedom of the gospel meant that they no longer needed to submit themselves to the Old Testament law. Instead, the freedom that Paul is talking about in verses 1 to 15 means that they would be walking by the Spirit, what he is now going to discuss in verses 16 to 26. And so that is the exhortation that he gives them in verse 16. Having told them in verses 1 to 15 that they are now free, the gospel has set them free, how now should they live? Paul says in verse 16, He commands them, he gives them an exhortation, walk by the Spirit. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What Paul is giving the Galatians there is a command, it's an imperative. It is something that we must do, we must walk by the Spirit. The word walk is a Hebrew metaphor for the pattern of one's life or conduct. It's a way of speaking of our lifestyle. It's a way of speaking about, our, about our gen, the general pattern of our lives, the general conduct of our lives, the way that we normally live. That is our walk. And Paul is saying here that our walk, the general pattern of our lives, must reflect the leadership of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us by the gospel. The agent here of walking, the one who helps us to walk, is the Spirit. Paul says walk by the Spirit. The word by there indicates agency. He's the one who directs our walk. He is the one who guides us in all of our conduct. He is the one who empowers us with spiritual power to walk as we ought. He's the one who empowers us to walk in the way of righteousness as God requires. To live the life that God calls us to live in Christ, we need the Holy Spirit. And to walk by the Spirit, we must continually then submit ourselves to the Spirit. It is a conscious and volitional decision to deny ourselves, to put to death the passions and desires of the flesh, and to surrender our lives to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And this is a kind of submission that must take place daily. I would say even hourly. I think I would also even say moment by moment. That to walk in the Spirit is not something that we can just decide to do first thing in the morning and let it go the rest of the day. But this is something that must be continually before us, it must be something that we continually submit ourselves to and surrender to. Why? Because we face at any given moment the temptations of this world. The temptations of the world seek to stir up within us the desires of the flesh. And though the bondage of the bondage and power of sin has been broken by the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we still face the strong temptations of this present age. We live in this world, we're going to face temptation. How many of you experienced temptation this week? How many of you felt the strong urge of temptation this week? We feel it. We experience it, right? Because that's, what, that's the world that we live in. That's the message that we constantly hear from the world. That's what the, 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 the very things that we are bombarded by as we live in the world. We, we live under the barrage of temptation. And that is why we need the Spirit's help. Because we've been redeemed. We have a new master. We've been called to walk in a new way. But we lack the proper power. We lack the power to do what is right. And so where do we turn? We turn to the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit's help. We need His guidance. We need His power. We must walk by the Spirit. Just think about all of the formidable challenges that you face on a daily basis. Husbands, how do you love your wife as Christ loved the church? When you'd rather love yourself. Wives, how do you submit to your husband as the church submits to Christ when submission is a very hard thing, when it's against our nature to submit? Children, how do you obey your parents when your parents frustrate you and exasperate you? Parents, how do you nurture and discipline your children when they seem so unresponsive to your discipline? How do you love your neighbor or pray for your enemies or serve your Christian brothers and sisters? How do you restrain your lustful passions? How do you kill your pride? How do you bridle your tongue? These are all things that God commands of us in His Word. And yet they are contrary to our sinful nature. There is a reason why we have problems with them, because we want to give ourselves over to sinful things. The world tells us that sin is okay, that sin is good, that we should do that, but that is the spirit of this age. And yet, the Scripture says, That we are not to live in that way. These things are that God calls us to are contrary to our sinful nature. So, how do we do what God calls us to do? How do we live righteously when we want to live sinfully? We walk by the Spirit. In the gospel, we now have the freedom to obey Christ. Paul has already mentioned that in chapter five, verse one, and also in verses thirteen and fourteen. We have the freedom now to obey Christ. Why? Because Christ has redeemed us from the power of sin and death. He has redeemed us from the slavery of the law. And even more, he has given to us his spirit. So, Paul says, walk by the spirit. That's the exhortation. And to that exhortation, Paul issues a promise in verse 16. He says, "...but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh." What a great promise that is. Walk by the Spirit. That's the command. That is what you are to do. And when you do that, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And when Paul uses the word flesh here, he's referring to our fallen human nature that we inherited from Adam. This is what we were before Christ. This is what people are generally and normally. Apart from Christ, apart from the Spirit... We are sinful people descended from our sinful ancestor Adam. It is the old Adamic nature. It is the old man. It is the fallen human nature that we inherited from him going way back to the very beginning. Before we believed the gospel, the flesh was subject. Our flesh was subject to the power of sin. And it was enslaved to the law. Our sinful desires naturally gave birth to sinful practices and habits. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter 6 properly calls this Slavery. We talked a lot of Galatians about the slavery to the law, but there is a real slavery to sin as well. We are enslaved to the power of sin, and Paul calls it sin, or Paul calls it slavery in Romans chapter six, because we naturally once capitulated to the desires of the flesh when we were tempted, when our sinful desires were brewing in our heart and, and gurgling up in our heart. We were naturally, instinctively gravitating to those things. There was nothing to restrain us from sin. Our evil hearts did whatever they wanted to do. But now that we have believed the gospel, now that Christ lives in us, now that God has given to us the Holy Spirit, Paul promises that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He tells us in verse 24 that the flesh has been crucified with Christ along with its passions and desires. In other words, the power of sin is broken. And that he has given to us his spirit to help us walk in the way of Christ. Tom Schreiner says that if believers live in the spirit, they will not put into practice the desires of the flesh. he goes further to say that if believers want to conquer the flesh, they must continually yield to the Holy Spirit. Now Paul explains why this is true. Why we will not gratify the desires of the flesh if we walk in the spirit. He, He shows why in verse 17. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So there's an antithesis, an opposition that exists between flesh and spirit. The flesh desires to pursue all those sinful things that we once desired. All the things that God hates. That's what we could say that's what sin is, right? Sin is what God hates. Whatever is sinful is against the character of God. There's a reason why God forbade all these things in the Old Testament. He did not want his people to walk in these sinful ways because he was a holy God and he desired his people to be a holy people. He wanted them to walk in conformity with his character. So the flesh pursues what is contrary to God because it is opposed to God. The Spirit, on the other hand, desires the things of God, right? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. And because he is the third person of the Godhead... He shares in, his, in God's divine nature and attributes. His desire is, or is for those things, then, that align with the character and will of God. So walking in the flesh produces what? It produces the fruit of the flesh. It produces the works of the flesh, not the fruit of the Spirit. And for those who walk in the Spirit, we produce the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of the flesh. So the question is, who are you walking with? Who are you walk, How are you walking Are you walking by the flesh or are you walking by the Spirit? Now, here's the thing. There is a great war that is raging in the heart of every believer. Paul says that the flesh and the Spirit are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So if we are believing the gospel, we have the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit produces in us holy desires and holy inclinations to act righteously. But because we live in this present evil age, because we are facing these strong temptations from the world, and because we have a spiritual enemy that is bent on our destruction, the desires of the flesh remain among us. They are still there. They are still present. Many of you battled with them again during this week. The desires of the flesh, the passions of the flesh, are a continual reality for us. And so this cosmic war between flesh and spirit is raging in the heart of every believer. So how do we succeed in that war? How do we succeed in that battle? How do we put to death the phoenix of the flesh, right? The phoenix, the mythical bird, right? That would, that would rise up from the ashes and then flame out into ash again. It feels like that is just like the, 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 this is a good metaphor for the desires of the flesh. It feels like, man, we've killed it, we've crucified it, and lo and behold, before you know it, It just kind of rises back out from the ashes, and there you go. You've got to deal with it again. How do we put to death the flesh? How do we succeed in this spiritual battle that is raging? Again, what does Paul say? Walk in the Spirit. We succeed by walking in the Spirit. The solution, then, for winning this battle is to walk in the Spirit, not the law. We walk by the Spirit Not by the law. Look at verse 18. Paul here really gets to the crux of the problem once again. The problem that's been brewing throughout much of the letter of Galatians. But if you are led by the Spirit, he says, you are not under the law. Again, the Galatians were submitting themselves to the law. They were thinking that the law was the source of their spiritual life and power. But as Paul said previously, the law does not make one righteous. In fact, he says just the the opposite. The law increases transgressions. The law increases sin in our life. And again, that's counterintuitive, right? Because we would think that the law would make us more righteous. It identifies what sin is. It tells us how we should live. points us in the right direction. But the law counterintuitively causes us to sin because our hearts are rebellious. When we are under the law, we are enslaved to its power. And we are enslaved to the power of sin. And so what does the law do? The law leads us to gratify our heart's rebelliousness and causes us to sin more and more. Even the Old Testament recognized the law's failure to help us live righteously. Under the Old Covenant, how did God communicate his law to his people? How did Moses write them down? He wrote them on stone tablets, didn't Didn't he? Those tablets were to be posted. Those tablets were to be presented so that the people could see what God required of them. In other words, the people were to look outside of themselves to see this law written in stone. They were commanded from the outside to obey the law under threat of God's judgment. But this is what's so wonderful about the New Covenant. I don't have time to read the passages, but look at Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. And Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. God promises in the Old Testament that under the New Covenant, God would now write His law in our hearts. And He would put His Spirit within us. Why? To help us obey. In other words, the motivation does no longer come from the outside. It comes from within. God has given us a heart that desires to obey Him. God has given us a spirit to guide us in righteousness. He's given us a spirit to empower us to obey Him. So there's now an internal motivation to obey. It doesn't come from outside. The law looks at us from the outside and says you must do this. But the New Covenant says, That God's law is written in our hearts. He's given us a spirit who is able to help us obey. The law and the spirit then, like the flesh and the spirit, are opposed to each other. The law belongs to the old covenant. It's the old way in which God dealt with his people. But the spirit belongs to the new covenant. It's now the new way that God deals with his people. If we receive the spirit by the new covenant then we should be led by the Spirit, not by the law. The Spirit is now the controlling power in our lives. If we're led by the Spirit, then we are not under the law as a means of covenant living. Notice that in verse 18, Paul uses the word led, which signals for us here an active personal involvement by the Holy Spirit. If you are led by the Spirit, it's not that the Spirit just comes in us and just kind of sits on the couch and does nothing, right? The Spirit is active. He is personally involved in our lives to lead us to do what is right before God. And the word here, the word led us also occurs in the present tense, which indicates that the Spirit is ongoing. His work of, is, is in our lives is ongoing. It's ongoing activity in our lives. So the Spirit's active present in, presence in our lives shows us that we are no longer under the old covenant. We're no longer under the old way of God dealing with His people. We are now under the new covenant. The way in which God deals with us now, not by law, but by spirit. So looking to the law for justification, or looking to the law as a source of spiritual power, is futile. It can't help us. It's powerless. We are now led by the Spirit. And if we're led by the Spirit, then we're not under the law because we've been freed from the law. The Spirit is this new source of spiritual wisdom in our lives. It's the new source of power in our lives. Therefore, we must walk by the Spirit since that is the one that God has given to us to help us. It's by His presence, by His work, by His power that we are able to live in this new way. Because we are led by the Spirit, we are not led by the law. Because we are led by the Spirit, we have victory over the flesh. We triumph over our sin. Tom Schreiner says in his commentary that the Spirit's empowering presence grants believers the ability to conquer the desires of the flesh. That's an important point. We'll come back to that. But the Spirit's presence in our lives helps us to kill sin and to walk in the way of righteousness. It's at this point in the letter that Paul then turns to the contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. So in verses 19 and 21... We see the works of the flesh. Paul talks about how the flesh manifests itself in the unregenerate life. The word works here refers to the actions that flow from the fallen human nature. So in other words, again, think of our pre-Christian lives, our lives before Christ. The flesh was the operating power in our lives. We were full of sinful desires. We wanted to do those sinful things. The works of the flesh are the manifestations of those sinful desires. It's what comes out of our sinful desires in our hearts. Apart from the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, these actions, these are the actions towards which human, sinful human beings will instinctively gravitate. Again, think about a child, right? You don't have to teach a child to disobey, do you? You have to teach them to obey. Why? Because a child will naturally disobey. Their Adamic nature is coming out of them. It is instinctive for them to gravitate towards those things which are wrong. And so you have to teach them to do what is right. And so also for the unregenerate person, the sinful human being with a sinful heart naturally, instinctively gravitates towards sinful actions. Paul writes out just a a sampling here of of various kinds of sinful actions that are works of the flesh. And we can categorize these, these works of the flesh into four categories or four groupings. There are sexual sins in verse 19, religious sins in verse 20... Social sins in verses 20 and 21 and sins of excess in verse 21. So let's just kind of walk through these. We could develop a whole sermon on each one of these. I'm just going to kind of rapid fire go through these various sinful things that Paul is talking about. So Paul first lists in verse 19 the, the three sexual sins. If he lists first sexual immorality, which is more of an umbrella term, right? Or a, a general term for all sexual sin That is forbidden sexual activity. And what is forbidden sexual activity? Any sexual relationship outside of the one that God has given for us. The relationship between a husband and a wife in the bounds of covenant marriage. That is the only permitted sexual activity that we see in Scripture. All other forms of sexual activity are forbidden. Paul calls them here sexual immorality. These are sinful. These are wicked. These are a work of the flesh. Paul also mentions in verse 19 impurity, referring more to the defilement, the the outcome, the defilement, the uncleanness that comes because of sexual sin. In verse 19, he also mentions sensuality, referring here again to the, the, the desire, the motivation for sexual sin, the lack of restraint, the unbridled passion of sexual license. These are all works of the flesh. Paul next in verse 20 lists two religious sins or sins relating to false worship he mentions these these two together to indicate here to us the need or not the need but the desire to worship things other than god or to worship god in the ways that he is not required of us so he mentions first of all idolatry in verse 20 idolatry there refers to the worship of idols and of course in paul's time that was more uh, objects of stone and metal and wood to which people would bow down we may not see a lot of those kinds of idols today But anything in creation that we take and put in God's place is an idol, whether that be entertainment, whether that be another human being, whether that be uh, some uh, desire, some, some goal, some ungodly goal in life. Anything in creation that we put in God's place is idolatry. And that, of course, is sin because we are to give our total worship, complete worship to God alone. Sorcery, in verse 20, reflects a dependence on spiritual power apart from God. So this is the desire in ancient times to seek to manipulate spiritual power. That if I know the God's name, if I have the right incantation, if I say the right kind of prayer, if I offer the right kind of sacrifice, if I wear the right kind of amulet, if I do just so the right things, I can manipulate spiritual powers to get them to do what I want them to do for me. So what sorcery does is it causes us to... ...seek spiritual power from something other than God... ...or to manipulate God rather than resting in His promises. Right? We don't do any of that today, do we? We don't try to manipulate God to do what we want. Yes, we do. All In fact, it seems like a lot of times what we do... ...is to try to manipulate God to get Him to do our will. And that, my friends, is sorcery. We need to trust God and His promises. The third grouping of sins in verses 20 and 21 are social sins. These are sins of animosity that disrupt human relationships especially within the body of Christ. Enmity in verse 20 points to the hatred that lies at the root of relational discord. Strife is the outward contention that divides people from one another. It's the, 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 the physical, not physical minister, but the, the, the external disagreement, the external division that takes place between people, strife. Jealousy points to a zeal for self-glorification. Jealousy is a desire for oneself, something for oneself especially at the expense of humiliating someone else. Fits of anger or bursts of rage refer to savage flashes of anger directed toward others or uncontrolled temper that leaves others as collateral damage. Rivalries or selfish ambition grasps for praise and honor for oneself to the detriment of the good of others. Divisions or sometimes translated dissensions or factions point to selfish exclusivity that creates a party spirit where none to be found. Envy, in verse 21, refers to the desire to possess what others have. Wanting for ourselves what really belongs to someone else. We want it for our good, but we also want it for their harm. This envy is a desire for possessions. It reveals in us a dissatisfaction with the gifts that God has given to us. Those are the social sins. And then finally, the last category here are sins of intemperance or sins of excess. Those sins that exhibit a lack of self-control. Drunkenness refers to a failure to control how much one drinks so that one comes under the influence of alcohol as opposed to being controlled by the influence of the Holy Spirit. Orgies or carousing points to wild parties where people let their inhibitions go to enjoy the delights of sinful activity. And of course, be, please note, this is not an exhaustive list. If you read through those and say, I'm good on all those, doesn't mean that you're good on them all, right? Paul says, and things like these in verse 21. This is not an exhaustive list. There are a multitude of other works of the flesh that resemble the life of the sinful nature as opposed to the life of Christ. Apart from the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, these are the actions towards which sinful human beings will instinctively gravitate. Now, by identifying these as works of the flesh... We cannot dismiss these sins as insignificant or inconsequential. We can't point to them and say, eh, those aren't too bad. There's some on that list we would say, yeah, that's pretty bad stuff. But there might be some on there we would be tempted to think, well, that's not very significant. That's not very consequential. But friends, understand that sin is a big deal. And because sin is a big deal, Paul issues a warning to us in verse 21. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The tragic eternal consequence of continuing on to do the works of the flesh is that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not receive the promised life that God offers in Christ. They will not be restored to a right relationship with God. They will not inherit the incomprehensible blessing that God has reserved for his children. The consequence of continuing on in these works of the flesh is condemnation, death, eternal suffering of the wrath of God. Now, if you read that, what Paul says there in verse 21, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You might be a little troubled by the word do, right? The word do might cause us A little bit of fear and trepidation because we must admit that even though we are Christians, even though we have received the Spirit, that even though we may be striving to walk by the Spirit, that we as Christians are not sinless. We continue to sin in this life. The promise of sinlessness, the promise of true perfection rests in the great beyond, right? When this life is over, we have the promise that all sin will be done away with and we will be truly as the Lord. John writes in 1 John 1.8 that if we, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We still are sinners. We still sin. We admit that. In fact, we might even admit that there are some things on this list, if not many of these things that Paul mentions, are present in our own life. But the word do here is very precise in its tense. The Greek tense is important. It occurs in the present tense, which indicates an ongoing activity. Or a habitual practice. In other words, when the works of the flesh are ongoing, when the works of the flesh are a habitual practice in our lives, they reveal an unregenerate heart. They reveal a life that has not been born by the Spirit. They reveal instead the absence of the Spirit. Right? Because if there's if you're doing these things regularly, if you make a practice of these things on a regular basis, what restrains you? There's no Spirit to restrain you. You give yourself over to these practices. There's no guidance. There's no power to restrain these works. So Paul here is giving the Galatians and giving us a very serious warning. Seriously, we do struggle with these things. Paul says you are going to be in this battle where you're fighting against the flesh. And though this war is battling on in our hearts, we must fight against the temptation that starts at the flesh. Don't relegate it to the besetting sin. If one of these things is present in your life and continues to be a problem, don't just talk it up and say, well, that's just the way I am. That's just my besetting sin. That's just who I am. i got to be free to be who I am. That's what the culture says, right? This is what I am. i just got to give myself over to it. No. Paul calls us here to kill it, to fight temptation, because temptation is stirring up that flesh, again, like the phoenix, right? We think we've killed it, and all of a sudden, there it is again. How are we going to deal with this? We fight against temptation that stirs at the flesh. And that's why Paul's exhortation here is all the more necessary and important. We must walk in the spirit because God has given us his spirit as the antidote to our flesh. So when you find yourself struggling with sin, when you find yourself battling temptation, walk in the spirit. And to go back to the promise of verse 16, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, in contrast to the works of the flesh that characterize the lives of unbelievers, Paul enumerates the fruit of the Spirit that should characterize the lives of people who believe the gospel in verses 22 and 23. The word fruit there refers to the outcome, refers to the product of the Spirit's work in our lives. If we are walking by the Spirit as Paul commands, then we have the reasonable expectation that he will be producing these fruits in our lives. They will be evident in us. We will see them. Be able to point to them and see that the Spirit did that. The Spirit was working in my life to produce those things. Paul lists nine fruit of the Spirit here in this passage. And again, this is not an exhaustive list. There are others that we could add to it. But notice just what these are, just going through these briefly. Paul leads off the list in verse 22 with love. Love is the chief fruit. Paul previously said that the gospel frees us to love. Back in verses 13 and 14, he says that we should love our brothers and sisters in Christ. How? By serving one another. Love is the preeminent work of the Spirit because it is the mark of the new life that we have in Christ. And this is the attribute, this is the characteristic that we see most notably, we most readily associate with our Lord Jesus himself, right? We look at the life of Jesus. We see that that attribute stands out front and center. Love is the fruit of the Spirit. Next comes joy. Joy is the fruit that delights in God and His good gifts to His children. Peace points to a reconciled relationship that we have with God and the resultant relationship we have with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have peace with God because of what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And because of that peace with God, we now have peace with one another as the Holy Spirit works His peace, works the fruit of that peace out in our lives. Patience is a steadfast endurance and perseverance through all sorts of difficulties until the promises of God come to full reality in the believer's life. Kindness speaks to the generosity that a believer shows to others as he extends benevolence and grace. Spiritual kindness is manifested all the more when directed toward those who are unloving and ungracious. When others are unkind to you, the Spirit works kindness in your own heart toward them. Goodness, again, very similar to kindness. It emphasizes moral beauty and decency faithfulness indicates that those who are led by the spirit are loyal and dependable they can be counted on to fulfill their responsibilities gentleness like kindness and goodness manifests itself in humiliation in, humil- in humility and consideration of others for their good and self-control refers to discipline having mastery over our desires having mastery over our passions having mastery over our sinful impulses and, of course, as we look at this list, we see that the greatest example of them is Jesus Christ himself. These fruit of the Spirit are perfectly represented in his life. He is the one who who came from, as we've been been thinking about this Christmas season, he came, God sent him into our world. And what what, indi- what, what is really remarkable about Jesus' life is that he was led by the Spirit. He was a human being, truly a human being like we are. And so he lived the life that we're called to live, by the Holy Spirit. And so when we, when we think about these attributes, when we think about these fruit, these characteristics, we look to our Savior. We see a model and a standard in Him. He is the image of what we ought to be and of what we will be when we are walking with the Spirit as the Spirit works in us. Paul says in verse 23 that against such things there is no law, In other words, the law can only command this behavior. It cannot provide the power to produce it. For that, we need the Spirit. These are the fruit that the Spirit produces in us. And it's why we must walk by the Spirit. For only when we walk by the Spirit and the Spirit has free reign over our lives, that He is producing these these fruits in us to the glory of God. The fruit of the Spirit, then, is is evidence of a transformed life. We know that we have received the Spirit because He produces His fruit in us. And we know that because we can't produce these fruit in ourselves, that when we do see them, it is the work of, his, of the Spirit in us. He must be producing them in us. They are evidence of the Spirit's work in us. And so when we struggle with our salvation, one thing that we can look to is to see, is the Spirit at work? Is the Spirit producing His fruit in our lives? What a great, blessed means of assurance that God has given to us. So we don't struggle with, am I saved, am I not? One thing we can look at is, are we, producing the, are we seeing the fruit of the Spirit produced in our lives by the Spirit? By walking in the Spirit, we obey God's law. Again, not as a means of justification, but as the fruit of justification. Right? The law sets out for us what God requires of us. It sets out for us how He would have us to live. And so, by the Spirit, we obey God. And we walk in a manner worthy of our calling as sons. We walk as those who have been redeemed in the image of Christ. We are being conformed into that image by the working of the Holy Spirit. By listing out the works of the flesh and the works of the Spirit, Paul is doing more than simply contrasting two kinds of lives. He's setting out for us here the expectation of Christian conduct. Believers must abstain from the works of the flesh, but they must bear the fruit of the Spirit. And that can only happen by the work of the Holy Spirit. Walking by the Spirit and will result in the Spirit bearing fruit in our lives. So, this is good news for us, right? Because believers have the upper hand. If God expects us, if God's expectation for us is to have these fruits being produced in our lives, we have the upper hand because He's given His Spirit in us to produce these things. He gives to us His Spirit so that we will walk in a way that is worthy of our calling. He will walk in a way, He will help us to walk in a way in which we please the Lord. But God has given us an additional grace for the spiritual war that wages in our hearts. Not only has He given us His Spirit, He has also crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Look at verse 24. This is a very important verse. Paul says in verse 24, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, I want you to understand, Paul's been making a lot of commands in this section, right? Walk by the Spirit. But he's also here making an indicative statement, a statement of fact. This is true. This is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He has put to death the flesh in us with its passions and desires. Notice the qualification in verse 24. Those who belong... To Christ Jesus. Those who believe the gospel. Do you believe the gospel? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Are you hoping in him? Then the truth of what he has done is he has put to death the flesh with his passions and desires in your life. This is what God has done for us. God has united us to Christ in his work on the cross. Jesus Christ died on the cross. Why? To forgive us of our sins. And to break the power of sin in our lives. So when he was crucified on the cross, we were crucified with him. And when we were crucified with him, the, the, the flesh with his passions and desires were also crucified. Paul said something similar in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words... By Christ's redemptive death on the cross, the power of sin that once reigned in my life has been broken. The flesh that once ruled has been cast off the throne and been neutralized. The flesh was crucified and put to death. Therefore, the power of sin in the flesh is no longer reigning over me. I am free to walk by the Spirit. Even when temptation is strong, I can live victoriously. Even when the temptation is strong, I can resist the works of the flesh. How? By walking in the Spirit and allowing Him to produce His good and righteous fruit in me. This is a double grace. God nullifies the innate power that instinctively gravitates towards sin, and He gives us His Holy Spirit to lead us and empower us to walk in His way. What a beautiful beautiful grace god has given to us to do both those things and so as paul is rounding out his argument here about the contrast between the flesh and the spirit he repeats his exhortation in verse 25 he goes back to what he originally said so this this exhortation we've been kind of that's why i said it's the main point right it's bookended here walk by the spirit says what he says about it comes back to summarizing his point walk by the spirit look at verse 25 if we live by the Spirit let us also keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, if we have our life, if we have spiritual life by the Spirit, if we have been regenerated by the Spirit, if we have been brought from death to life by the Spirit, what's Paul referring to here? He's referring to our conversion. If we've been converted, we have received the Holy Spirit. Paul has repeatedly said that he believes the Galatians are converted. But notice he casts this question as a conditional to use the word if, to let it kind of hang over them there. Look, examine yourselves. Look and see, are you trusting in Christ? Have you received the Holy Spirit? Are you believing the gospel that I once preached to you? Do you have spiritual life? Paul assumes they're going to answer yes, but he kind of casts it as a conditional there to kind of get them to, to examine themselves. It's a very important thing for us to do as well, to examine ourselves. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians that we're to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. It's a good question to ask ourselves repeatedly. Are we in Christ? Is the Spirit in us? Do we see His working among us? Paul assumes the Galatians will answer yes. And if that's the case then, there is only one appropriate response. And what is that? If we live by the Spirit... What's the response? Let us walk in step. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. That's the key point. The Galatians are no longer enslaved to sin. They're no longer enslaved to the law. They're no longer enslaved to demonic power. They've been set free by the redemptive work of Christ. They've received the Holy Spirit. What remains now is for them to walk by the Spirit and to keep walking by the Spirit until the hope of righteousness for which they eagerly await arrives in its fullness i'll say here as well in verse 25 you'll notice if you're using the ESV version there, the version i'm reading from is actually an updated version from the original version if you're using the pew bible i think it's the original version if you're using the pew bible it's translated as walk walk with the spirit but here in the updated version it says keep in step with the spirit it's only because it's a different greek word but they mean the same thing When Paul says keep in step with the Spirit, he's saying the same thing he said back in verse 16. Walk by the Spirit. It's essentially the same idea. In other words, what Paul is saying here in verse 25 is that having begun with the Spirit, having received the life of the Spirit, having seen the activity of the Spirit, keep going. Keep walking by the Spirit. Keep resisting the temptation to do the works of the flesh. Don't return to the slavery and powerlessness of the law, but allow the Holy Spirit to guide you into righteousness by his power so that he bears his fruit in you. Brothers and sisters, Paul's word to the Galatians is his word to us. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. May God give us the grace to walk by the Spirit to abstain from the works of the flesh and to produce his fruit in us for his glory and for the good of his people. Let us pray. Lord, we are so thankful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that in your wisdom and providence, you have promised the Spirit to us as your new covenant people, as the means by which we are now to live and walk. When once, under the old era, under the old covenant, under the law, we were supposed to walk according to the law in order to receive our righteousness from you. Now, in this new era, we have your righteousness. We've been justified by faith in Christ alone through his sacrificial death on the cross. Now we walk, we live in this life you've given to us by his power and by his direction for his glory. We pray, Lord, you would help us to battle against the flesh, to battle against temptation, to put to death those things, Lord, that continue to keep rising up within us, we feel. We pray, Lord, you'd help us to walk by the Spirit so that his fruit is produced in us. For your glory and for the good of your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.